welcome to Testimony, a place where we bear witness to the past to give meaning to our present and educate for the future. My name is Sean, and I'm your host for this podcast. Welcome to my first ever podcast episode. I'm a PhD student in American history and public history at Loyola University Chicago, and I'm excited to share with listeners some of my thoughts and experiences learning about issues of public memory, how everyday people and communities remember the past. Exploring the past is more than just reading a history book or watching a documentary. The past is all around us. We see it through museums, the built environment, plaques and memorials on street corners. We see it in cultural and religious values and traditions. We can experience the past through music, through food, through our own family members. All of these expressions of the past tell stories, and these stories are what give meaning to our present realities. Of course, that's not to say that these stories are always positive, far from it. The stories that manifest all around us through oral conversations, art, Photos, objects, buildings, and other things we interact with in our daily existence convey every range of human emotion. Since we humans are social beings, it also shouldn't surprise us that our individual understandings of the past and stories can often contradict each other. Let's take, for instance, the hot topic of monuments to the Confederacy that have been highly contested in the last few years, to say the least. Communities in favor of these monuments will argue that they represent Southern heritage and uh, honors the memory of ancestors who may have fought for the South in the Civil War. While you have communities against these monuments, you will argue that they embody racist notions of white supremacy and are vestiges of the Jim Crow era of segregation. Both ends of the spectrum take the same piece of the built environment, these monuments, but apply wholly different meanings. Issues like these have developed my personal interest in memorials and monuments, which gets to the title of this podcast, Testimony. As a word that signifies something or someone who bears witness, I found testimony uh, to be a fitting framework to explore how things in our built environment bear witness to the past, and likewise, how the communities behind their construction literally set in stone their testimony to shape the meaning of their present and preserve a legacy for the future. So that gets us to the focus of this podcast series. There are so many topics I could talk about with relation to how people remember the past, but I want to hone our attention on a particular type of physical expression that communities create to publicly bear witness to the past memorials, and monuments. Even within this topic, there are three avenues of approaching the conversation. And on one hand, we can first consider the communities who created these spaces of memory. What were their historical circumstances? What were these spaces intended for? Who were they intended for? What statements or testimonies did they want to create through these sites? Secondly, we have to consider the monument or memorial bearing witness itself. Regardless of the intentions of the people who built it, what does the physicality of the memorial share? What materials is it made of? Is there text to interpret it? 
What kind of environment is it located in? And how might this affect its ability to communicate? Is it inside a museum? In a public park? Private cemetery? Is it representational, meaning does it try to show human beings, or is it abstract? Generally speaking, the, the more abstract the monument or memorial is, the more open it becomes to interpretation. And finally, we should consider the various communities who interact with these memorials and monuments. And this is where we most often discover issues of contested memory. How often do people actually come to this space? stop to read its texts, if there's even text on it? Do people emotionally respond to these memorial spaces? And how do people construct and apply their own interpretation to these spaces? So you have these three players of memorials in our built environment. One, the creators. Two, the physical space itself. And three, the audience. All these three form a fascinating dynamic that we're going to explore in greater detail throughout this podcast series. And even still, attempting to understand how communities bear witness to the past through these memorials is a humongous task. Simply put, there's just so many different types of memorials and monuments that it's, frankly, it's just hard to do all of them justice by comparing them all with a wide brush. That being said... This first series is going to look at a particular genre of memorials in a specific geographic location. Since I'm located in Chicago, it makes sense for me to start this exploration right here in the Windy City. As a historic crossroads in America's Midwest, it's not hard to justify Chicago as a good case city for exploring memorials and monuments in America. But even at a more specific level, I want to focus this first series on a very particular set of memorials in the Chicago area. America, of course, is a nation of immigrants, and in Chicago that truth is especially the case. Given the sheer diversity of immigrant groups throughout the city and suburbs, it's interesting to compare how different peoples create uh, their sense of identity. Many groups came seeking greater economic and social opportunities, and others are here because they fled political turmoil, or famine, or even cases of genocide. Some have lived in America for three, four, five generations, while others, the memory of the old country is still a fresh reality within their families. So why the need to remember the old country? I'll admit that this answer is different for different immigrant backgrounds. I'll speak for myself, for example. I'm a descendant of immigrants from Norway, Sweden, Germany, Holland, England, and Northern Ireland, all of whom arrived before 1900. However, I don't feel a need to actively remember this heritage beyond my own family history. It's just not something that shapes my personal sense of identity in a meaningful way. But, but let's contrast myself with someone who is, let's say, the grandchild of Polish Jews who came to America after surviving the Holocaust. That person has lived their entire life in America, just, just the same as I have, but, but their sense of identity with a larger diaspora is far stronger because of this shared experience of the Holocaust. And I would even say there's a far greater moral imperative to remember and commemorate what's 
now seen as a cornerstone in the American Jewish identity and experience. That memory of the old country, and, and this, let me remind listeners, that this is a, often a memory of loss. That memory is what can anchor a community's sense of togetherness as its members give meaning to their present identity as Americans. And this is not only true for Holocaust survivors and their descendants. The same need to remember could hold true for any diaspora community who immigrated to America, having survived some kind of genocide or atrocity committed against them. And I can't think of a more concrete way this memory of the old country is materialized than through the monuments and memorial spaces the diaspora communities create here in the United States. So for this first series of testimony, I'm going to focus on genocide memorials in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. Now, some of you may wonder, why such a grim topic? First off, I'll admit, yes, genocide is indeed a grim and sobering topic. At the same time, though, I believe it's an important starting point for us to understand memorial culture in general. And it turns out that Chicago actually has a pretty diverse set of genocide memorials across its landscape. Comparing these individual sites in the communities who built them can actually provide us insight to how different types of memorials address specific needs of different communities. Compared to other types of memorials, we'll say for instance monuments to American national heroes or figures, Genocide memorials in America are a little unique in that they commemorate events that did not occur on American soil. And moreover, these tragic events happened to non-Americans. Granted, these immigrant communities who built these environments have now taken on American identity, certainly. But the memorials themselves are testaments to, to what they and to what their parents or grandparents lost in the old country. For these diaspora communities, the genocide memorials ensure the perseverance of that old country identity for future American generations. At the same time, the whole notion of preserving a testimony to the past is a bit of a tricky one. And this gets to the relationship between history and memory. Now, we might assume that a memorial makes history permanent, but in reality, that memory is constantly changing, and it varies from person to person. For example, what I might remember about, let's say, September 11th, 2001, as a second grader at that time, is going to be different than what someone who was an adult in Lower Manhattan remembers from that day. And likewise, my memory to that event will be different from the person born, let's say, 50 years after 9-11, who will only learn about it from reading a book or, or talking to people who uh, were alive when it happened. And the farther removed we are from any event or experience, our perspective also changes. Let's take World War I, for instance. So this year, 2018 marks the 100th anniversary since World War I's end, and practically everyone who had any memory of that conflict has passed away by now. Sure, we have plenty of videos and oral histories of people who experienced it, and those will carry on for posterity, 
But our collective memory of that history has fundamentally shifted and will still change as time goes on. And that, that same reality will be true for World War II and the Holocaust within the next 20 to 30 years once all that generation has, has uh, passed away. So we can see now why memory is really never stable. And this tension between memory's instability and the attempt of these memorials to bear witness for posterity will be something we've come across throughout this podcast series. And in the case of genocide memory, I would argue that the stakes for this tension are actually quite high. And since this is just an introductory episode for testimony, Let's now start talking about some of the specific genocide memorials that we'll visit over the course of the next few episodes. Just to kind of give you the layout of each episode, uh, each episode is going to focus on a specific diaspora community in the greater Chicago area and the physical space that community has created for commemorating um, genocide. As we're about to see, these memorial spaces are not all the same. They, a lot of them take on different forms. Some are more abstract, while others are representational. Some are, are housed inside a museum or a cultural center, while others are located outside in a cemetery or um, outside a church, in one case at least. Uh, some incorporate religious motifs and values. Some are intended for outside visitors and education purposes, while others uh, seem to be used especially for the inside community. The ones I've chosen to visit are, of course, not meant to represent all genocide memorials or be some sort of comprehensive survey of all types of memorials. I'm sure there are, are plenty of sites that I have yet to discover that may possibly be featured in future future episodes. For now, though, there are four examples in the local Chicago area that I believe can illustrate both the diversity of the memorial landscape as well as the commonality um, in the things that, in the concerns that have been brought up. So for our first episode, I'm going to introduce us with the genocide that is already well known to most Americans, the Holocaust of six million European Jews at the hands of Nazi perpetrators and their allies during World War II. So Skokie, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago for those listeners not from the area, is uh, home to a large population of Holocaust survivors who were responsible for the creation of uh, the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. It's a place I highly recommend people to visit if you're ever in the area. And compared to the more famous U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., uh, the Illinois Holocaust Museum has uh, what I, I believe is much more noticeable connections to the local Jewish community. And it's a direct response to a historical event that happened in the 1970s uh, when um, the neo-Nazi Party of America attempted to march through Skokie um, to deny the Holocaust. And uh, in this in this episode, uh, which will be the next episode, I won't be talking so much about the museum as a whole, um, but I'm rather going to focus on a couple memorial spaces 
within the building and uh, talk about how the architecture uh, creates distinctive areas of contemplation for uh, museum visitors. Following that, our uh, second episode will take us to the Cambodian community in greater Chicago and Illinois. And while they're a much smaller diaspora group compared to the Jewish population, the Cambodian American population came here largely in the wake of the Cambodian genocide committed by the Khmer Rouge regime, who killed more than a quarter of the country's population between 1975 and 1979. Chicago actually houses the only memorial museum in the United States specifically dedicated to the victims of Khmer Rouge. Uh, inside the Cambodian Association of Illinois is the National Cambodian Heritage Museum and Killing Fields Memorial. Uh, compared to the Holocaust memorial spaces, the Cambodian Killing Fields wall is a much more private and intimate space that is actively used by Cambodians across the U.S. to remember their lost loved ones. It's lesser known, but the memorial and museum is open to the public for tours upon reservation. From here, the third and fourth episodes will cover a couple genocides that are uh, less known to the general public. Uh, these lesser known ones will also delve into some of the contentions of memory and uh, the issue of um, victim representation and um, who can claim ownership of that memory. The third episode will cover the monument to the Holodomor, um, or the Ukrainian famine, or Ukrainian genocide, um, which is located uh, right next to St. Andrew's Ukrainian Orthodox Church in the west suburb of Bloomingdale. The Holodomor, um, which roughly translates to extermination by hunger, um, was a widespread famine Ukrainian peasants experienced in the early 1930s as part of the Soviet Union's collectivization program for grain. Uh, and this was largely driven by uh, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, uh, who forced um, many of these Ukrainian peasants into this program of collective farming, which actually displaced entire uh, farming communities, uh, took by force, harvested crops, and uh, grossly mismanaged food production that led to the starvation of um, between three and five million Ukrainians, although other esti estimates uh, the deaths to be, uh, be up to 10 million um, who were killed in this famine. Um, and Chicago has historically had a sizable Ukrainian population, uh, although more recent generations have actually migrated to the suburbs. Uh, the Holodomor Memorial outside St. Andrews uh, was first unveiled in 1993 as part of the 60th anniversary commemorations of the Holodomor held by Ukrainians around the world. Uh, and this was an important act of commemoration and testimony for the Ukrainian community, largely because the, the famine was not really acknowledged as genocide by many outside the community or really even known about uh, until after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, uh, after Ukraine became independent and historians um, who explored the briefly open uh, Soviet government archives uh, found a lot more evidence to the Soviet Union's uh, deliberate policies to starve uh, Ukrainian peasants and eliminate um, what was seen as potential threats to Stalin's regime.
And the fourth and last site we'll visit in this series is the Assyrian Genocide Memorial located in uh, Montrose Cemetery in uh, North Park neighborhood. Uh, for those who may not know, uh, the Assyrians, uh, not to be confused with Syrians, um, the Assyrians are an ancient people who have historically lived in Mesopotamia in parts of what's now Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Um, they've never had a nation state to call their own, um, but they do share a deep cultural heritage and maintain a unique form of Eastern Christianity um, and live among a majority Muslim peoples. During and after World War I, the Assyrian people, along with Armenians, Greeks, and other non-Muslim minorities in the Middle East, experienced massive deportations, and massacres, and genocide at the hands of the Turkish government's attempt to racially and religiously purify the Ottoman Empire. Um, though many resisted and survived this genocide, uh, the Assyrian people still experienced successive ways of violence, persecution, and massacres at the hands of extremist political and religious factions, um, even with some of the most recent persecutions happening at the hands of ISIS. Uh, such being the case, uh, numerous Assyrians have sought refuge here in the United States. Um, in the subsequent conflicts in the Middle East since the genocide during World War I, has led to continued immigration waves, and this has really strengthened the Assyrian-American diaspora's ties to their homeland. In fact, there's actually a huge Assyrian diaspora community right here in Chicago, um, with a self-projected population of close to 100,000 people when taking into account um, these continuing migrations. Um, so the memorial to the Assyrian genocide has only existed for a little more than 10 years, um, but its large park-like setting in the cemetery uh, makes it accessible to large community gatherings, um, and it actually serves as a ritual center, not only to testify to the genocide from 100 years ago, but also a place to commemorate Assyrian identity, um, particularly rooted in Assyrian Christianity. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll get to some of the more uh, um, further details of each of these cases when we get to their episodes. Um, but for now, um, I've laid out kind of a course uh, that we'll set as we visit through uh, some of Chicago's diaspora communities um, over the next few episodes. Um, I'd also like to mention that in each episode, I will feature an interview with someone who's connected with these communities in memorial sites, um, whether that is a museum staff person, um, a member of the clergy, a survivor, or a descendant of a survivor. Um, <laughs> rather than just listening to me talk the entire time, I, I think you, my listeners, uh, will enjoy getting a first-hand perspective on these various memorial spaces as we learn about uh, what processes and decisions go into their creation and the materials and design of these spaces and, and how they're used. Um, as we get further along in the series, uh, we'll also have some better opportunities to compare and contrast uh, some of these different spaces and perhaps evaluate how effective they are at being testimonies to history for the benefit of the future. So there you have it. Uh, that 
basically wraps up my introductory episode for this podcast series, Testimony. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I have no idea how long this will last or where we will eventually end up, but I'm excited to uh, start this conversation with listeners. Um, and speaking of conversation, I also want this to... Uh, um, I would love to hear feedback from many listeners out there, uh, especially with this being my first experience podcasting. Um, please subscribe on uh, whatever podcast provider that you use. Um, you can also look me up on uh, social media with the Twitter handle at uh, Sean, S-E-A-N-T, Jacobson, J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N. Or you can also email me at sjacobson1 at l-u-c dot e-d-u. Royalty-free music is provided by Les Hayden, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, and Vortex. This podcast has been produced and edited by Sean Jacobson. Audio recording equipment is courtesy of Loyola University's Digital Media Lab. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next and first full episode of Testimony.